Hello and welcome to the fourth in a series of podcasts by Arts Council England, looking at key digital topics brought to light by the Digital R&D Fund for the Arts. The £7 million investment in digital projects across the arts sector, delivered by Arts Council England, Nesta and the Arts and Humanities Research Council in partnership. This programme is all about data and archiving. There are a huge number of arts-based collections out there, with many arts organisations holding and indeed creating them all the time. But how can digital technology help to make these archives and the data within them accessible and useful? In this programme, we'll be exploring a number of data and archive projects, including one from the Public Catalogue Foundation, making available huge amounts of public artwork. By the end of 2012, around 210,000 paintings will be on the Your Paintings website, and those will come from approaching 3,000 collections across the United Kingdom. And those paintings are the work of approaching 50,000 artists. The British Museum's approach to data and archives. Some organisations might have information that the British Museum doesn't have. There's some information that the British Museum has that those other organisations don't have. But by combining them and combining them with rules about that information, we may be able to infer additional information that none of those organisations knew before. Another view comes from the Google Art Project. Some visitors want an official curatorial view only, and other people want to say what they want to say only, and other people have a sort of range of responses in between. So it's about a kind of tailored, customised set of thinking that caters for a wide range of possibilities. Along with how the use of the archives has changed with the times. We've had gay and lesbian records that have suddenly been discovered because someone's effectively decoded what they were called in Victorian and pre-Victorian times. So all the time we're trying to harvest what users are finding out about the records and add that to the sum total of what we know about them. But first, to my guests on the programme today and joining me in the studio are Drew Hemant from Future Everything, Bill Thompson from the BBC and Dr Paul Gerhard, who runs the independent consultancy Archives for Creativity. Welcome to you all. Word of introduction, first of all. Drew, tell us, what is Future Everything and how does the organisation use archives and data? Future Everything is a digital arts festival and an innovation lab. We've been involved in open data projects for quite some years. And as a cultural organisation, we don't hold a collection, but we're very much engaged and inspired by the potential of living archives. And Bill Thompson, you made a brief appearance on an earlier podcast. Your work at the BBC, you're in the archives development department. What, What does that involve? Developing the archive, I mean, that's an easy way to say it, but I glory in the title of Head of Partnerships Development within Archive Development, so there's a lot of developing going on. And really, I'm part of a small group that's thinking about how the BBC can get the most public value from the the things it has stored over the years. The BBC's archive is massive and growing every day. It's been curated, it's been looked after largely so that it can serve the interests of the BBC itself in terms of programme makers. Well, what else could be done with it? And how could the BBC work closely with other institutions that either create or curate material on behalf of the public to enhance its value to everyone? And Paul Gerhard, I presume you're serving a similar role, but within the wider arts sector, offering advice on how
how arts organisations can make use of their archives and make them more available to the public. Uh, yes, part of the job is to put together the arguments to help them frame and win the funding they need in order to carry out the digitisation of their archives in order to make them publicly accessible. Well, an obvious place to start when looking at the archives is, of course, the National Archives. And earlier this week, we spoke to Caroline Kimball, Head of Licensing at the National Archives, about why digitisation is so important. Far more people can interact with documents when they're online than can physically sit in a reading room with a box in front of them. The ratio here is about 200 to 220 views of a document online to every one production here. So access is is a big one, but another main reason is preservation. I think certainly if your collection or your material gets used in an education context, then if you are not Googleable to this generation of students, you don't exist. If you can't Google it, it ain't there and it's not going to get used. So even if it's only a very top level description of what you've got or what you do or where you're going and you can't find it online, you're really going to struggle to A, reach the born digital generation as your audience and your participants, you're, as a result, going to struggle to convince your funders that what it is that you're doing and how you let people know about it because the digital route to finding out what's going on is the primary route these days for most people. Caroline Kimball, Head of Licensing at the National Archives on the issues of access and preservation of data. Bill Thompson, important point that she made there is is that there's a generational thing, isn't there? To a younger generation, uh, if you're not there within the Google setup, you don't exist. Yeah, and she said that, and it may be true, but I think that's a problem, not something we should be endorsing. The fact is Googleable does not mean or should not mean findable. There are many other ways to get access to information than using Google. And to believe that if something has to be in a search engine in order to be found is, I think, to, to betray a lack of understanding of how the internet works now and how the web could work in the future. There's an enormous amount of development about technologies called things like the semantic web that would reduce the need for search engines. Yeah, we're going to talk about that later, actually. Well, the the point about the semantic web and other things like that is that you don't then have to have this very simple-minded approach that you type in some keywords into a form on a web page and it finds your stuff. You actually do proper, serious research. And it seems to me that Caroline is slightly giving in to the, the laziness of young people and the commercial interests of Google by saying, if it's not Googleable, it might as well not exist. Mm. If it's not a visible on a screen, it might as well not exist. I agree entirely. The material has to be digitised. But we shouldn't just accept the one model of search that Google have built their business around and which they seem to see is the only one we should accept. Paul Gerhard, do you yeah, agree with that? I think let's take one step back and say the good thing is that what we can no longer do is to separate the task of preservation from the task of access. There was a time when institutions and curators could spend all of their working lives making sure stuff was looked after and well-labelled and behind closed doors. You cannot do that today. If you're going to invest in preservation, then you've got to at the same time invest in the means of making that material available outside of the institution. Well, let's move on and uh, take a look at a specific arts archive which has evolved with the development of technology over the last few years to offer the public 
An insight into dance and choreography, the Siobhan Davis Replay Project began in 2006 in partnership with Coventry University, the AHRC and the Arts Council. It's believed to be the first digital dance archive in the UK, possibly even the world. Sarah Watley, the archive's principal investigator for the project, explains why and how they did it. So Siobhan Davis Replay is a digital dance archive and it includes nearly all of the material, documentation, film, media, still image, textual material relating to the work of Siobhan Davis, the choreographer, principally from 1988, which is the point where she established her own company, but it also reaches further back to the early 70s. So in a way, it mirrors the development of contemporary dance in Britain. You can find many, many videos. We wanted to emphasise video because in dance it's incredibly difficult, even today with YouTube and Vimeo and all the other sort of online platforms, it's actually still quite difficult to get access to dance. And certainly in 2006, when we began the project, which doesn't seem that long ago, it was almost impossible to get access to dance on film. But in addition, it includes thousands of images, so still images, photography of the work in production and in rehearsal. One of the more exciting aspects, we think, is a lot of unseen documentation, film material of the studio-based work, the dances in the studio in rehearsal making work so from a user point of view you get a glimpse into the dancers making thinking process and we've also got two prototype um, which we call kitchens and they're places where the user can see very much all the layers that formulate a single choreography so the kitchens provide access to all of those rough sketches and processes along the way to the work being finished. Why we like them is because it gave us a chance to play with the visual design. So the visual design of the kitchen reflects something of the design of the dance, the way in which the dance, for example, in Birdsong, which is a work that's made in the round, so it's a circular choreography. So the visual design captures something of those concentric circles and how the work moves inwards and outwards to the centre of the circle. Paul Gerhard, let me turn to you first of all. We heard Sarah Watley there talking about how the Siobhan Davis Replay Archive helps to present not only the finished project, but also that talks us back through, shows us the creative process. I mean, that seems to me like a very good model for other arts organisations. Yeah, it, could, it could be quite inspirational. I think it's a great model and I think it's a good demonstration that a, a small archive focused on a particular art form can design a relationship with the user that's going to really fulfil the purpose. There's an important point here, which is that there are issues around our big national archives that are very complex and difficult and are being tackled. But what the smaller archives and the arts bodies and the cultural bodies with interesting small archives, what they should do is not wait for these big glaciers to start to move mm. because they can do really interesting things already. And that's a very good example from the Siobhan Davis Dance Studio. There's another one. If you look at the British Council and the work they've done on their small but fascinating archive of films made in the 1940s, which were made for an overseas audience, yeah. which have been rediscovered, digitised, put on the British Council site and reinterpreted by a young team working for New Deal of the Mind. And it's a really fascinating example of how a new generation has interpreted a bunch of material that was created well, well before 
they were born and probably their parents as well. True, Hammond. And the key here is being proactive with the archive. It's not, again, it's not letting it sit there, but it's actually doing something new with it. You can create something new out of what's been sitting there in the past. Absolutely. But I, I think the nice thing of the Siobhan Davis archive and what it can illustrate to people thinking of taking on this challenge themselves is there's a question that comes before that, actually, which is the question of what you capture. I thought that illustrated really nicely, you know, how do you give people access to dance? And what we saw there was it, it's not just about the video, it's all those additional materials, that really nice idea of revealing the different layers of the choreography, capturing that. Also, I very much liked the way that the design was very sympathetic to the art form, that the visual design really responded yeah, to that. Yeah, she was saying how form. it mirrored what was happening in the dance piece itself yeah, on, on the screen. So I think there you've got a really good illustration of someone who's really thought through what they're trying to capture and how the final form is going to be appropriate and is going to enable an audience to get access to that work. Partnerships are very important. Building an archive from scratch can be a difficult business and it's clear that establishing a partnership between organisations is crucial to a lot of these digitisation projects. I'd like to take a look at two different ventures involving partnerships that are bringing art to the online world. Firstly, Andrew Ellis from the Public Catalogue Foundation, the PCF, whose work to digitise oil paintings from all the public collections from across the UK enabled the Your Paintings project, partnered not only with the BBC but also with the audience by inviting them to add their own labels or tags to the art? We were interested in the idea of involving the public in helping in some way, particularly given that projects, particularly in the US, a project called the Steve Project, ran out of I think Indianapolis and Washington, was using social tagging processes to show how audiences were actually using different words to catalogue paintings to the words that were being used by the authoritative curators. That interested us because obviously it's the audience's vocabulary really which is the one that's going to be used to do the searching. What really determined the direction we took was coming across a project run out of the astrophysics department in Oxford called Galaxy Zoo in which they had a million photographs of galaxies. Their PhD students were labelling them one by one. It was taking a long, long time. And so they came up with a fantastic web interface, a tutorial for the public, explained to the public how you identify different galaxies. They put some very clever algorithms behind the scenes to raise the reliability of the data. And that struck us as being a good way forward. So we talked to them. We talked to the University of Glasgow about the art historical classification systems we wanted in place and also an audience-focused consultancy that the BBC brought in to tell us how the public wanted to find paintings online. And we brought all that together, created a classification system that suited both the art historians and the public. And then with the algorithms generated by the astrophysicists, we created Your Paintings Tagger. And that is our mechanism for asking the public to help us to classify and tag with keywords the paintings on the All Paintings website. Andrew Ellis from the Public Catalogue Foundation. Now, in the second example of a partnership venture, the Google Art Project sees gallery spaces and artworks from across the world being put online. James Davis from the Google Cultural Institute explains more. So on the art project specifically, we're working with around uh, 151 partners from about 40 countries around the world. This is expanding all the time. 
you can see in terms of the scale of how the project has increased. So from 17 museums a year ago, it's around 150 museums now. And this is because the cultural sector and their audiences both agree that a platform like this is a very good way forward. And our audience write to us and they tell us so. And they provide us feedback, which we incorporate into the product because we know it's not perfect. So we're continually trying to innovate and add new features and use new technologies but also increase the accessibility so that we can get to an even wider audience because we all believe that art actually has a massive audience online that is as yet untapped. So we're just beginning. One of the advantages that we have is that we use lots of Google's platform and technologies. Some of the invisible stuff that we're not really aware of when you're sort of a user of google.com. There's so much incredible powerful technology going on behind the scenes that you don't really appreciate when you're just using google.com search. So we use tools like App Engine and Picasa to drive how this project works and this is to our advantage that we have access to those. So one of the challenges if anyone else was trying to put something like this together was to what products and services they would use to drive things behind the scenes and I have to say that we own some of the best products and services to do that. Anyone is welcome to use Google products and services for their own ends and lots of art related products use Google technologies behind the scenes. Well, there we are. We heard James Davis from Google and before him, Andrew Ellis from the Public Catalogue Foundation. Two different approaches to similar projects. We're talking about partnerships here. Bill Thompson, let me just ask you about Google, first of all, there. They're offering this service for free. You know, you can visualise galleries around the world. You can see paintings on walls. What, what did Google get out of it? Well, Google get a number of things out of it. And I mean, firstly, they just get visibility and exposure and are seen to be nice people. And I think yeah, let's not underestimate the importance just of the, the PR aspect of it. They also get to try out these tools and these services in different environments and more interesting environments. But let's not forget the fact there are people in Google who we've just heard of there, like Steve Cross, who runs the Google Cultural Institute, who really care about this stuff, who actually do want to make significant partnerships, who want to make the world a better place, who have this you know, bag of tools and technologies they got from Google and can use it in interesting projects that cost Google very, very little. So there are all these things going on. However, at the core of it, you should remember, you know, the internet mantra, if you're not paying for something, then you are the thing being sold. So ultimately, what Google get out of this is more ways to expose more people to adverts online, which is how they make money. Right. So Paul, so Google there, according to Bill, are taking the commercial long view. I mean, at the moment, with with opening up the galleries, putting them all online, it all looks very benevolent. It looks very altruistic. Obviously, that would depend a lot on your long-term understanding of Google, its strategy and where it's going to sit. But it's not dissimilar from the partnership strategy of the Public Catalogue Foundation that Andrew described. Yeah. Because the reason that your paintings was able to be effectively launched and to get the reach that I hope it has today is because it was launched in partnership with the BBC. And in exactly the same way that Bill described, the BBC is benefiting from an association with a national collection of oil paintings throughout the UK. It's benefiting from being able to link that collection to its own programmes on art 
when they go out in peak time and to say, if you enjoyed that program, go and see these paintings or go to that gallery. So it's been just as important for the Public Catalogue Foundation to find that major partnership in order to win eyeballs and to get the access it needs, as it has been for the galleries to work with Google. Well, let's look at how tools are needed to develop large-scale archiving and data management. We heard earlier Andrew Ellis explaining the tagger tool that the Public Catalogue Foundation and the BBC have created in the Your Paintings project. But uh, during this summer of British sporting success, the V&A have been producing a collaborative archive with its audience about the Olympics and the Paralympics using the well-established image archiving tool Flickr. The audience was asked to upload photos onto Flickr of any graphics relating to the Games. This could have been anything from quirky shop displays to the road markings of lane closures, protest signs and ticket designs. Catherine Flood, curator in the Word and Image Department at the V&A, tells us why they use the audience's help. We decided that Flickr would be a good place to host it, but then we promoted it through Facebook and Twitter and also through a blog on the V&A site, sort of pulling out some of the interesting contrasts that we've got between graphics supporting the Olympics, graphics criticising it, scale projects that were sort of projected over buildings right down to kind of little stickers on the tube and just pulling out some of the themes and sort of writing about them on the blogs. There was a little bit of encouragement to begin with. You know, we took quite a lot of our own images to give people an idea of the sort of things that they might include. But then it was really up to people to interpret it the way they wanted to. When we catalogue actual physical objects in our collection, we pay quite a lot of attention to tagging and keywords. And obviously, when you hand that over to the public, you can't control it. But I think what we might do is, when we download these images from Flickr, if we have the resources to, we, we might add some more tags of our own to make it a more usable database for researchers in the future. Catherine Flood from the V&A. Paul... Catherine here was saying that curators felt they needed to often add their own tags and to correct what had been created by the public. Doesn't that defeat the whole object of the exercise, though? I think potentially it could, but I would prefer to interpret that as a sensible engagement with the audience. There has to be a to and fro. There has to be a respect for the understanding that curators bring to the material, as well as an interest in and a welcoming for the vocabulary of the audience, as Andrew Ellis put it very effectively earlier on. I'm just thinking of another example of audience engagement, which, if you like, goes beyond the tagging approach. It's the archive that's been established by the film director Sally Potter, where she has put her professional work and much of the private research and production work behind her films online in an archive called the Sally Potter Archive, or known as Spark, S-P-A-R-K. And what Spark offers to users is the opportunity to actually develop learning pathways through Sally Potter's work, whether it could be the colour of a dress Mm. that was worn in one of her films and follow through the design, the decisions made, the production shape and work out the thinking and the methods behind it. And these learning pathways become part of the richness of the site itself. Mm. You can jump on, piggyback them, you can explore them yourself, you can develop your own pathways. So 
opening up audience engagement can be a very rich experience in its own right. And Bill Thompson, you've mentioned metadata, and we've been talking about the ways in which the archives, the data can be classified through labelling and tagging. Just just explain in a bit more detail about the idea of metadata and why it's so important. Well, in a sense, metadata isn't even an idea. It, it is, is just the catalogue, as in it is the description of an asset, of an artefact, of an item in the archive. And so it is useful technically to distinguish between you know, the recording of you know, a podcast or a television programme or a still photograph, it's like the bits that make up the actual thing, the asset, and how it is described. And that's the metadata. It's the data about the data. What's of interest, what's exciting is how you structure it, that you don't just collect, you know, 500 word description of something, but you actually break it down into a series of fields with values to say, you know, the recording date, the length, the bit rate, the names of the contributors. And if those are the contributors have names like you know, John Wilson or Paul Gerhardt, you link that in some way to bibliographical records of those people. Right. So you start to create a mesh of interlinked information that allows you to position a particular asset within the overall framework of an art form or an organization or an individual. And that allows you to take the, the journeys that Paul was talking about earlier and go from one collection to another collection seamlessly. This needs structural coherence, though, doesn't it, for the information that one organization is uploading to be understood by another organization for it all to mesh together. And we, we heard earlier you use the phrase semantic web. Let's have another example. This is Dominic Oldman. Deputy Head of the Information System Department at the British Museum, one of the leading research museums in the UK, describing his approach to the semantic web and how it can be useful at the BM. Yeah, the problem is that museums all have different databases. They always use different ways of formatting their data within a database schema. So syntactically, we're completely at odds with each other. And also semantically, we don't describe the data in the same way as well. So we have different taxonomies, we have different terminologies for describing our data. And the semantic web allows us to put our data in a format which is compatible syntactically, but also allows us to describe or map our data to descriptions which are common between different organisations. So instead of having a web page that has a location address, a URL, like www.britishmuseum.org, you put those addresses on individual pieces of data. So instead of linking between pages, you link between pieces of data. And because you do that, you can combine data from different sites and you can start pulling them into your own applications, manipulating them, analysing them, and perhaps even inferring new knowledge from them if you're combining them with knowledge of other organisations. And in the semantic web, there's another term called linked data. So linked data allows you to set these hyperlinks between different snippets of data from different organisations. The semantic web is about describing those snippets of information in a very similar way. So if I describe an object in the same sort of way as the VNA or a university, then I can establish not just hyperlinks between pieces of data, but potentially I can link data simply by having an agreement about what those pieces of data mean. And that means that possibly I can federate searches across different organisations without actually having any particular link between them, simply just having a common understanding of what that data means. And it acts like a single database. That's Dominic Oldman from the British Museum. Now, all this talk of data taxonomy and semantic webs, I can imagine there's a lot of arts organisations that would find this stuff pretty 
daunting. Okay, so you have, I'm a small arts organization, I have digital assets, I can't speak this language, I'm being left behind, I think, I have a massive data, I've collected it, I, I have no technologically inclined employees. Where do I start then? I think probably one of the things that unfortunately we have to say is that you mustn't start from the language that you've already developed around your own assets because that's going to be misleading. We're talking about external standards here, not ones that come out of your experience and your direct relationship with the material. So yes, you will have to get advice and you will have to talk to people like Bill and others who can provide some expertise and some guidance on minimum approaches that required in order to eventually standardise your metadata with some of these other projects. Paul's absolutely right, you do need advice, but there are projects out there which are trying to educate the sector. So I've been working within the BBC on the space. It's this attempt to to bring the best of digital art to every screen. And as part of being part of the space, you have to give us metadata and we tell you what we need. So there is a metadata schema underpinning the space website, which we have mandated. Now, that's partly because it's the only way to make it work, but also partly to educate the arts organisations to say, this is the sort of stuff you will need. Get used to it. Exactly. Well, not get used to it, but but learn about it a bit. Appreciate why it is useful. And we hope that will give them the ability to take part in some of the wide range of activities that are around there for arts organisations that want to get involved with digital projects and services and stuff like that like for example hack days right and hack days drew that's when you are asking people to come in and and hold your hand for a bit and help you through this process hack days are one of a number of mechanisms for really trying to exploit the potential of these archives and databases so Hack days would tend to be maybe a workshop with some coders and developers coming together with some of the data managers. They might start with some problems or some challenges, might just get your hands dirty on some data and really try and see what kind of applications you can build and how you can structure that around a particular, in this case, cultural organisation's needs. Well, let's look at some of the opportunities and the challenges that arise when thinking about other organisations accessing the data in the archives for their own websites and how you can develop a system that enables them to do this. One way of opening up your data is through what's known as an API, Application Programming Interface, a kind of technological conduit into a big software system. One example of a cultural organisation offering the use of their API is the Brooklyn Museum in New York. Their API is, and I'm quoting from their website here, a set of services that you can use to display Brooklyn Museum collection images and data in your own applications. Incidentally, ArtFinder and the Google Art Project have both used the Brooklyn Museum's API to display the collections on their websites. Drew, there's a question of trust here, I presume, isn't there? That you're offering up this information, this technology, and hoping that other people are going to use it well. I think there's two sides to that. One is people using your technology. One is about accessing the the cultural content as well. I think the point just made is a fundamental one. We're really looking at a shift here where we're looking at recorded culture being made available to people. Now, APIs are one of the ways to give people access to a platform. And the key there is that you're allowing people to build on your work and you're giving access to that work. So, yeah, there's issues of trust, but I think I'd flip that and say the starting point is a spirit of generosity and, again, as a point 
which is what Paul was just previously well made. That's not new. The aberration is modern society that locks culture down. We're returning to a a situation where uh, culture is more about a living tradition, where we can build on the work of others as we've always really done. Which, to me, sounds like API facilitates that sort of spirit. Then it it does absolutely, just because it gives you an easy way to identify what's there and to get your hands on it and use it in new ways. And also, it's a way that doesn't necessarily remove it from where it's originally being stored. And so, crucially, with an API as the method of accessing a collection, the original collection remains intact and where it was, but it can be used in a variety of different ways. And so you have that link back to the provenance. You actually know where something came from. Whereas if you just throw everything into the big digital bucket, you don't know what came from where. That doesn't mean it can't be used creatively, but in the context of our discussion about digital archives and cataloging and cultural heritage, once you break those connections, it becomes much harder to assert the cultural value of something. But if it can be used creatively, it can be misused creatively as well, I presume. Use and misuse are the same term when it comes to creative use, surely. And misuse has always been possible. It wasn't, again, (laughs) it it wasn't invented in the digital era. It's always been there. And indeed, misuse is in the eye of the beholder. A creative use of material will be interpreted by some as being an abuse of that access and by others as being the most creative response to it. So we have to take that on board as part of our process of trust. And Drew, on this question of the sharing of data on open data systems, this is something that you're pursuing within Future Everything at the moment, isn't it? There's a parallel with all this interest in opening up and making accessible uh, cultural experiences and cultural works, and that is the movement around open data. Open data, and and usually that's thought of in the context of government data, public data about our lives, our transport, our weather, etc. There's a movement to making that available, publishing that in accessible formats, in formats that computers can read and make use of, in order to make government more transparent, but also to spark innovation so that people can access that data and create new services that wouldn't have been conceivable previously. And that really kind of prefigures many of these discussions and debates in the cultural space. And we can certainly learn from that. There's been lots of work done about the underlying infrastructure, the standards that kind of resonates through this debate. And it's very much a parallel concern. There are opportunities for arts organisations to to use their data in in creative ways. Data visualisation, this is almost kind of creating visual patterns with data, isn't it? Well, data visualisation is maybe one branch of data arts. Data visualisation is a means of making data intelligible. So it's actually, I'd say, more of a design practice than an art, strictly speaking. One of the issues about data is it's zeros and ones. Machines can understand it, but we can't. Data visualisation is a very, very particular practice, which is all about interrogating, exploring that data, writing algorithms and code to manipulate that, to expose different dimensions, to reveal some picture about the patterns, about the stories that the data is trying to tell us. This technology is developing all the time. Things are happening so quickly. So this might be a very difficult question. It's crystal ball time here. I want to ask my guests what they think the future holds for data and archiving across the arts and cultural sector. Paul, I mean, traditionally, archives have always been about the past, but what about the future for the past? I think we're going to be moving on from the concept of archive. The word archive very much still has locked within it this notion of institutions that hold material which they have 
sufficient control over to release in dribs and drabs however they wish. In essence, what we're talking about are collections of our cultural memory. And those centres of memory are going to have to become as important to the public, the learner, the teacher, as our public libraries of books are. And we're going to have to find ways in which we can draw on the public value, the educational value of those collections, particularly moving image collections, which is my particular interest, in the same way that we can draw on the printed word, as we have done for 500 years since uh, Gutenberg. Bill Thompson. No, I mean, I agree entirely with what Paul said. And I mean, if there's been a degree of consensus around the table today, it's partly because the three of us have been thinking seriously about these issues for a long time and have come to similar conclusions. Because if you observe the impact of the technology, some things become obvious. We need to have standards for digitization so that the material can be made accessible. We need to have an emerging ontology with a vocabulary and a taxonomy for the metadata so that we can find the stuff that could be accessed. And we need to sort out a rights framework and new forms of artistic expression so that people can make use of this material, both to highlight the old and to create the new. And we do something for the arts that is similar to what the internet has done for commerce and the military and governments for the, over the last 15 or 20 years. We actually take advantage of the affordances of this new platform to revitalise all of our creative practice. So that's the key opportunity, Drew, is that the archives will not just be about understanding the past, it will be about creating the way that we understand the present and will be developing new artistic practices in the future. One thing that is new about today is that every interaction we make that involves any kind of digital tool leaves a trace. And many of those interactions are with artworks. So for the first time, we are creating these living archives and we're interacting with historic archives in new ways. We're transforming them into much more dynamic entities. And this does really open up some very exciting opportunities, some not insignificant challenges. And you've been hearing some of the ambition and some of the drive and, and commitment that's looking at that space right now. Well, we'd very much like to hear from you on all of the subjects raised in this programme. Please do tweet us at hashtag artsdigital, that's all one word. Many thanks to my guests, Drew Hammond, Bill Thompson and Dr Paul Gerhard. The Digital R&D Fund for the Arts is open for applications until the 30th of December 2013. To find out more information or to apply, visit artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. You've been listening to a podcast from Arts Council England. Don't forget to share and bookmark these podcasts on the Arts Council iTunes channel or at the Arts Digital R&D website, artsdigitalrnd.org.uk. Music